So we're looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. And if you can choose your translation, uh, we're going to be looking at the NIV. And we're looking at uh, this famous story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the reading of God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started it out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Amen. Um, well, last week, you know that we wrapped up our series in the Lord's Prayer. And um, for the next few weeks, we're actually going to do uh, a little bit more one-off sermons. Uh, we have a couple great guest speakers lined up as well as we kind of look forward to uh, Easter Sunday, which it's crazy that Easter is already coming up. But uh, our story today comes from the book of Acts. And, and this book is all about how the you know early church spread from this small marginalized group of Jews to the entire Roman Empire. You know, and, and the reason the community in Acts is so beautiful is that it's the kind of community no one could imagine. You know, if I told you there was a community out there where literally everyone was welcome, where everyone shared their possessions, where people from all walks of life broke bread together, uh, you would probably tell me that community doesn't exist. And, and, and if the thought of a community like that doesn't really excite you, uh, it's probably because uh, you've always been on the inside. You know, you've, maybe you've never known what it's like to be or feel different. You know, to be on the outside looking in. You know, to be, uh, to have less than everyone else. You know, when people say things like, you know, I don't know why that guy's so sensitive about not being invited to that dinner or that trip. It's really not a big deal. Uh, the people who usually say that uh, are, are the ones who've never not been invited to something. You know, people who've never felt the sting of being left out or being forgotten. 
Um, but you see, what made the early church so attractive was that it welcomed and even prioritized those who were marginalized and discarded by society. And, it, and you know, at some point, I really want to preach through this entire book uh, because if you read Acts, you will understand why Christianity exploded in those early days. Um, in a time full of division, hostility, and injustice, people saw how this community lived and they said, I want to know who this Jesus is because I've never seen a group of people live like this. You know, and, and, and yet, you know, fast forward now to 2021 and all the studies are showing that people are leaving the church in droves. You know, and why? You know, because in our world full of division, hostility, and injustice, they see a community who looks just like everyone else, right? Exclusive, judgmental, unloving, self-preserving, a community that creates boundary markers that lets certain people in and keeps other people out. And, and I really think this breaks the heart of God because at the very core of the gospel is the story of a God who crosses every imaginable boundary to reconcile sinners to himself. You know, the Bible says that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, while there was absolutely nothing about us that would warrant God's favor or mercy, God says, I want to have a relationship with you. And it's this kind of relationship that we as Christians are now called to embody and pursue in the places we live, work, and play. Okay, and so uh, this story we're looking at today in Acts 8 is maybe one of the best illustrations we have in Scripture uh, of what living on mission looks like. And it's the story about an encounter between two people uh, who really have no business uh, being in community with one another. Uh, you have Philip, who's a deacon in the early church, and then you have this Ethiopian eunuch that's an outsider in every sense of the word, you know, by race, ethnicity, geography. Um, and the very fact that he's a eunuch uh, meant that he couldn't fully participate in temple worship according to Jewish law. And, and yet this is the man to whom God sends Philip. Okay, so this isn't a chance encounter. This is a divinely orchestrated conversation. And this is why the text opens with, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Okay, this isn't Philip just stumbling upon this Ethiopian eunuch. This is the Lord leading Philip to him. Okay, now what's really interesting is that there's nothing in there about how, and Philip, when you get there, you're going to see a guy in a chariot, go talk to him. No, no, there's nothing like that. You know, the angel of the Lord says, just go south to the desert road. And it's only after he meets the Ethiopian that the Holy Spirit gives him further instructions. And isn't this how God often works, right? He doesn't always make it clear why we're in the industry we're in, why we happen to be somewhere at a specific time, what the purpose of our relationship with this one person is. He just asks us to be obedient and to pay attention. You know, uh, you know as you know, like, We've been praying and thinking a lot about uh, where our church is going to be after this pandemic is over. And honestly, a lot of times I wish God would just say like, Jason, you know, move the church to this building on this street 
And then when you get there, you're going to meet someone who's running this nonprofit organization. The church is going to be an answered prayer for that person. You're going to partner with them and you're going to launch this and that initiative. And it just doesn't happen like that. You know, often God puts us in a place and tells us to pay attention. And I think if all of us took a moment to just take inventory of our lives, I think we would see that God has already placed us in very specific contexts around very specific people to whom he's calling us to embody and enact the gospel. Okay. Now, uh, before I go any further, I want to give a quick caveat. Uh, This story is understandably the story that's always used in sermons about missions and evangelism, but is often used in a very specific way that I think is extremely problematic, okay? Uh, often this, the way this story has been taught to us is that there's this Christian, Philip. He sees this helpless Ethiopian eunuch, has compassion on him, and then basically saves him. Okay, by boldly sharing the gospel with him. Okay? And so the pastor usually tells us, so now go be like Philip. Go out into the world. Go find all these broken people. Go out to undeserved communities and then boldly proclaim the gospel to them. Okay? And so we send people on short-term missions. We organize local outreach efforts, all with good intentions, right? Because we think this is what we're supposed to do only to end up disempowering the very people we're called to help. You know, you've all probably by now heard of something called the white savior complex. And it's this Western idea of missions that really looks a lot more like colonization. Okay, so we go to um, a community that's in need and we say, here we are. You know, we have something you need. We're here to save you from your brokenness. Uh, And so here's what we're going to do for you. Right, And what what ends up happening is that you come home from this mission trip or from that service event and you're feeling so great about yourself because you feel like you've given that community such an amazing gift. You know, when in reality, all that has happened is that you've increased in your your sense of self-importance, right? And now, uh, please don't hear me saying that I think uh, short-term mission trips and service, service events in and of themselves are bad. Okay, I think they can actually be really great opportunities to force us out of our bubbles, uh, for us as Christians to practice hospitality and generosity, uh, for us to get a glimpse of the heart of God. But I think we have to be very careful not to fall into the temptation of buying into the notion that we are somehow God's gift to this community and that we're doing this community a huge favor just by dropping in for a while, okay? This is why I personally have so much respect and admiration for missionaries, Um, some of them who are parents of people in this Zoom chat uh, who've chosen to dedicate their entire lives to be with and live in community with those they've been called to serve. And, you know, usually you won't hear about these people in the news uh, because so much of what they do is not newsworthy, right? It's just a steady daily commitment to be with people and to love them sacrificially. You see, it's so easy for us to make ourselves the hero of the story and place ourselves in the center of the narrative. Um, But in the end, that always does a lot more harm than good. Uh, You know, in 2019, uh, NPR ran a story about a 19-year-old American missionary named Rene Bach. 
maybe you've heard of her. Um, but she basically opened a treatment center for malnourished children in Uganda. And she had a blog that became really popular. Uh, she raised a lot of money for her center uh, on social media. Her story kind of went viral. And, and her life kind of became this model for missions. Well, in 2019, uh, she was sued in Ugandan civil court. And the claim was that she was responsible for the deaths of over 100 children under her care. Okay, and, and these were children she probably shouldn't have been caring for in the first place, given the fact that she had no medical training or medical expertise whatsoever. Okay, now, I don't doubt that Renee Bach was a very was a kind woman with great intentions. And, and I don't tell us this story so that um, you can start pointing fingers and, and judge people who are doing things for their community, you know, while you kind of sit on your high horse and post on social media. I don't tell you that story for us to become more judgmental. I tell us this story because I do think it raises a lot of questions about what it means to live on mission and how we apply Acts 8 into the way we understand our role as believers and as a church in the city. And as we get ready to, you know, maybe start gathering in person again, as we kind of think about where we might be as a congregation and the community uh, we might be a part of, I, I really want, wanted us to kind of uh, internalize what I think this text is teaching us. And the text is going to help us answer some of those questions, okay? So first thing I want us to notice in this story is that the Ethiopian eunuch is not presented to us as this disempowered needy person. He's actually a very powerful person. It says he's a court official in charge of the treasury. Okay. It says he's riding on a chariot and he's reading from a scroll. Okay. A scroll that was probably very expensive. So right off the bat, it's apparent that the Ethiopian eunuch is very rich. He's powerful and he's educated. Okay. And that in and of itself should give us a, a little bit of muscle confusion right? Because that's not usually the way we think about missions. You know, we think about missions, again, as going to a third world country or an impoverished community that needs our money and resources. But the Ethiopian eunuch does not need Philip for these things. And I think this is important because it sets the power dynamic from the beginning. Contrary to popular belief, Philip is not necessarily the one in charge of this interaction, okay? It's the eunuch that's calling the shots, Okay. Uh, you know, of the many people we lost in 2020, uh, I would say Chadwick Bozeman, uh, was definitely, uh, one that was, um, particularly heartbreaking. And, and I remember, uh, reading a whole bunch of articles about him in the wake of his death and, and about the significance of black Panther as a cultural artifact. And, and I remember reading this article in the New York times and it was titled, why Black Panther um, is a defining moment for Black America. And the article talked about how it, you know, it wasn't because Black Panther was the first major Black superhero movie. You know, it wasn't that that made it so revolutionary because it wasn't the first major Black superhero movie. But the article talked about how it was the first time that a movie of that scope centered its entire narrative around black excellence. Like it wasn't your typical story about black pain or black suffering or black poverty. 
It was a story built around black rulers, black inventors, and black creators, right? It gave the black community a sense of agency and dignity. And I think in the same way, uh, we have to be mindful as a church not to strip the people and communities we serve of their agency and their dignity. You know, so many, so much of the way churches have done outreach and missions has been to treat people like objects, right? We throw money at them without any effort to get to know who they are. It's dehumanizing and it's unbiblical. You know, we need to understand that there is a richness and history to every community and neighborhood we're called to serve. And to miss those things is to do that community a huge disservice. One of the, one of the best parts about building a relationship with Royville for us is that the, the school stopped becoming just this school who was the object of our charity. You know, we got to know the administration, the staff. We got to have conversations with them. We got, we got to know their stories. We got to know their kids. It was to the point where they were bringing their kids to our Sunday service. And these are the kinds of relationships that I think this story is modeling, okay? Now, the second thing I want us to notice uh, is that the eunuch in this story is already reading from the book of Isaiah when Philip encounters him. Okay, huge, but, you know, subtle detail, but a huge one. God is already doing something before Philip gets there. Okay, a lot of times as Christians, we tend to think we're the ones bringing Jesus to a group of people. No, Jesus was there long before we got there. Okay, we're simply joining the work God is already doing. Uh, my favorite definition of evangelism is from Daryl Johnson, who said, evangelism is joining a conversation the Holy Spirit is already having with another person, okay? Uh, growing up in the church, I don't know about you, but I was often told that I should never miss out on an opportunity to share the gospel explicitly with someone, and that if I, if I did, it meant that I was embarrassed of God, and that one day when I get to heaven, God was going to say, you were embarrassed of me. Well, now I'm embarrassed of you, you know? And so I was shamed into sharing the gospel explicitly, explicitly with other people, um, you know, and I was, and every time I did that, uh, that person never talked to me again, okay? And, and this kind of thinking, again, makes the story revolve around us, right? It's this idea that if we don't say or do something, that all of a sudden, that person will never know Jesus. Now, uh, do I think there are times when the Holy Spirit opens doors for us to share our faith? Absolutely. Do I think we need to force those conversations in fear that without us, the Holy Spirit can't work? No. Right? I can't think of how many stories I've heard of people who've been building this incredible friendship with their neighbors. They're having them over for dinner. They're doing life together. And then for some reason, they tried to force convert them only to lose that relationship forever. You know, and when it comes to missions and evangelism, we just need to show up and see what God is already doing. Sit with the people in your life who are grieving. Listen to the people in your life who want to share their stories. Grab a cup of coffee together, you know, in person once this pandemic is over. Or for now, like 
get together with someone on Zoom. You know, and these things seem simple, but this is what living on mission looks like. Okay? Now, the final thing I want to point out in this story, uh, and I don't know if it's a detail that you caught, but notice that the very first words out of Philip's mouth is not a statement. It's a question. We Christians right now are really good at making statements. Okay, we're really good at getting on our soapboxes and telling people what they need to do, what they need to think and believe. But notice what Philip does in verse 30. It says he runs up to the chariot and he asks a question. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And then he leaves it there. And he just waits until the eunuch invites him in. He doesn't come uninvited. He doesn't barge in where he's not welcome. He doesn't come in and just start fixing things. He waits until the eunuch invites him in. You know, I remember when Carol and I uh, first had kids, we had no idea what we were doing. And uh, we had some amazing friends at this church who are on this Zoom chat uh, who used to watch our kids for us from time to time. And they had multiple kids of their own. So they were vet veteran parents. But one thing we appreciated so much uh, about our friends is that they, you know, as experienced as they were, they never gave our kids something or did something with them without asking us first. You know, and, and to be honest, like if they did, it probably wouldn't even have bothered us because we knew they were so much more knowledgeable than we were. But it was such an act of humility for them to say, hey, uh, do you usually let your kids have dessert? You know, or hey, is there a certain way you want us to nap them? You know, like it's a posture that asks Hey, we're here to help. How can we help? Not one that says, here's how we're going to help, right? I, you know, I see this even in the way we approach our individual relationships, right? Christians, we're so good at giving unsolicited advice to our friends about how they should feel or what they should do when they're going through something. If we would just be humble enough to ask questions instead of giving statements, what do you need right now? Hey, what is there anything I can do right now? You know, maybe we would realize that what they need is not our advice. What they need is just for us to listen. Okay? And I believe all these things are very subtle details in the passage, but it's so important to how this relationship between Philip and the eunuch unfolds. Because now, at the very climax of this story, you don't see someone up here serving someone down here, right? You see two equals in a mutually life-giving encounter. And it's in the context of this kind of relationship that the eunuch turns to Philip and he says, tell me what this passage I'm reading means. And in verse 35, it says, then Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip meets the eunuch exactly where he is, and he uses that opportunity to tell him the good news of Jesus. What I love is that even after this moment, the eunuch never loses his agency. You know, listen to what it says in verses 36 and 38. It says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and then the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of being, my being baptized? 
And then in verse 38, it says, And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. The eunuch is still calling the shots. Even though Philip is the one who's brought him the good news, he has never disempowered the eunuch in the process. From beginning to end, the eunuch is never stripped of his dignity and his agency. You know, and I, I, I'm like a broken record saying this, but this is why what I loved about Renew LA, um, you know, and I can't wait for Renew LA to come back. And it, you know, I loved that, um, you know, when we had our church members um, put on that virtual performance with students in our community, it was never this sense of like, we're citizens and we're serving these students in our community hey, look at them, you know, look at what we're doing for them. No, it was literally like that was never mentioned throughout that entire performance. It was a mutually life-giving moment when you had, when it was this moment when you were like, oh, we're all neighbors. We're all learning from each other. We need each other to become the kinds of people Jesus has called us to be, okay? Churches, I'm going to say this, that we historically don't want to talk about missions like this because life like this is way too costly, right? Because it means we actually have to give up of ourselves. It means we actually have to dislocate ourselves from our privilege and our place and our wealth into the world of our neighbors. We actually have to ask questions and submit to their leadership. And if we're honest... Sometimes it's just easier and more efficient to decide for ourselves what a community needs, what a person needs. Why waste our time having these difficult conversations when we can come in with our fancy programs and initiatives and just assume everyone wants our help? Uh, there's a book called Toxic Charity, and in it, Robert Lupton writes this. He says, doing for rather than doing with those in need is the norm. Add to it the combination of patronizing and unintended superiority, and charity becomes toxic. Giving to those in need what they could be gaining from their own initiative may well be the kindest way to destroy people. You see, what we see in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is not one person who is the protagonist and the other person who is a passive object of the protagonist's actions. We see two people side by side, each bringing their whole selves to the conversation, right? Baptizing the eunuch was not Philip's goal. Relationship was the goal, which is why it's the eunuch that brings up wanting to be baptized, Right? So we need to start prioritizing relationship over need. If you want to know what living on mission looks like, it looks like relationship. Think about the way Jesus did his ministry. He taught and served people by coming alongside them, by becoming one of them, by sharing in their environment and their problems. Even when you think about the way Jesus healed, he always asked, what do you want me to do for you? It, it was a question, right? It wasn't, and you're healed, and you're healed, and you're healed, and you're healed. No, it was, do you want my help? What do you want me to do for you? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What do you want? Right? Um, it's very fitting, I think, that the passage the eunuch was reading from 
is Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And it's a picture of Jesus who willingly places himself under the ones he came to serve, who willingly suffers injustice even to the point of death on a cross in order to have a relationship with us. It's not a picture of charity. It's a picture of sacrificial love. And, and you have to imagine what it was like for a eunuch who couldn't have children of his own and thus couldn't carry on his line to then read about this king of the Jews who also didn't have children of his own. Like the very words he's reading, look at verse 33. It says, In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Jesus had no descendants because his life was taken from the earth. In that time, a king's greatness, a person's identity was connected to his lineage. It was connected to his family. And so you have to un imagine what it meant for this eunuch to read about this king who didn't choose to rule from his high horse, but a king who chose to become just like him, right? And, and what Philip probably ends up sharing with the eunuch is the rest of Isaiah 53, the part that says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. And it's the story of a God who doesn't wield power over, but one who places himself under that ultimately moves the eunuch's heart to want to know Jesus. Friends, when the gospel begins to take a hold of our lives and when we realize just how broken we are apart from Christ, it changes the way we view and live with our neighbors. You know, when Christians read this story, we often put ourselves in Philip's shoes, right? We're the ones who need to go out and share the gospel with the lost, right? That the people who need the gospel most are out there. But if we were to really take a moment to reflect most of us, I believe, are a lot more like the Ethiopian eunuch. We're successful, we're powerful, we're educated, but we're in need of something more than what this life has to offer. In other words, the people who need the gospel aren't just out there. They're right here. We need the gospel. And the only way we can be empowered as the people of God to live on mission is to first understand our own need. And it's only when we truly grasp that we are sinners saved by grace, not by anything we've done or accomplished on our own, it's only then that we can be begin to see our neighbors not through the lens of us and them, in and out, better or worse, but it's only then we can see our neighbors as fellow brothers and sisters who are deeply loved by God, so loved that He gave us Himself that we might be restored to a right relationship with him and to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. Uh, we realize that uh, we're all just needy people in a world full of needy people. Um, and we believe that uh, you've placed uh, each and every one of us here in specific contexts, uh, around specific people, uh, to be embodiments of the gospel to those around us. Lord, in a time uh, when there's so much uh, hatred and division and hostility, 
just across racial lines, ethnic lines, political lines. We pray that the church would be different. Help us to be a community that bears witness to who you are by the way we love and serve our neighbors. Give us the humility to listen to the hurting and the vulnerable around us, to give ourselves sacrificially to the way that you've given yourself for us. May we be a church known not for our slick programs, our slick initiatives, or even our right theology. May we be a church known primarily for our love. Teach us to see the world and people as you do. We entrust our hearts and our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.